Section 28 of The Green Fairy Book This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Green Fairy Book by Andrew Lang Prince Vivian and Princess Placida Part 1 Recording by Aubrey Kirkham Once upon a time there lived a king and queen who loved one another dearly. Indeed, the queen, whose name was Santorina, was so pretty and so kind-hearted that it would have been a wonder if her husband had not been fond of her, while King Gridelin himself was a perfect bundle of good qualities, for the fairy who presided at his christening had summoned the shades of all his ancestors and taken something good from each of them to form his character. Unfortunately, though, she had given him rather too much kindness of heart, which is a thing that generally gets its possessor into trouble. But so far all things had prospered with King Gridelin. However, it was not to be expected such good fortune could last and before very long the queen had a lovely little daughter who was named Placida. Now the king, who thought that if she resembled her mother in face and mind she would need no other gift, never troubled to ask any of the fairies to her christening, and this offended them mortally, so that they resolved to punish him severely for thus depriving them of their rights. So, to the despair of King Gridelin, the queen first of all became very ill, and then disappeared altogether. If it had not been for the little princess, there is no saying what would have become of him. He was so miserable. But there she was to be brought up, and luckily the good fairy Lalotte, in spite of all that had passed, was willing to come and take charge of her, and of her little cousin, Prince Vivian, who was an orphan and had been placed under the care of his uncle, King Gridelin, when he was quite a baby. Although she neglected nothing that could possibly have been done for them, their characters, as they grew up, plainly proved that education only softens down natural defects, but cannot entirely do away with them. For Placida, who was perfectly lovely, and with a capacity and intelligence which enabled her to learn and understand anything that presented itself, was at the same time as lazy and indifferent as it is possible for anyone to be while Vivian, on the contrary, was only too lively, and was forever taking up some new thing as promptly tiring of it, and flying off to something else which held his fickle fancy an equally short time. As these two children would possibly inherit the kingdom, it was natural that their people should take a great interest in them, and it fell out that all the tranquil and peace-loving citizens desired that Placida should one day be their queen while the rash and quarrelsome hoped great things for Vivian. Such a division of ideas seemed to promise civil wars and all kinds of troubles to the state, and even in the palace the two parties frequently came into collision. As for the children themselves, though they were too well brought up to quarrel, still the difference in all their tastes and feelings made it impossible for them to like one another so there seemed no chance of their ever consenting to be married, which was a pity, 
since that was the only thing that would have satisfied both parties. Prince Vivian was fully aware of the feeling in his favor, but being too honorable to wish to injure his pretty cousin, and perhaps too impatient and volatile to care to think seriously about anything, he suddenly took it into his head that he would go off by himself in search of adventure. Luckily this idea occurred to him when he was on horseback, for he would certainly have set out on foot rather than lose an instant. As it was, he simply turned his horse's head without another thought than that of getting out of the kingdom as soon as possible. This abrupt departure was a great blow to the state, especially as no one had any idea what had become of the prince. Even King Gridolin, who had never cared for anything since the disappearance of Queen Santorina, was roused by this new loss, and though he could not so much as look at the Princess Placido without shedding floods of tears, he resolved to see for himself what talents and capabilities she showed. He very soon found out that in addition to her natural indolence, she was being as much indulged and spoilt by day as if the fairy had been her grandmother, and was obliged to remonstrate very seriously upon the subject. Malat took his reproaches meekly, and promised faithfully that she would not encourage the princess in her idleness and indifference any more. From this moment poor Placida's troubles began. She was actually expected to choose her own dresses, to take care of her jewels, and to find her own amusements. But rather than take so much trouble, she wore the same old frock from morning till night, and never appeared in public if she could possibly avoid it. However, this was not all. King Gridolin insisted that the affairs of the kingdom should be explained to her, and that she should attend all the councils and give her opinion upon the matter in hand whenever it was asked of her, and this made her life such a burden to her that she implored Lalotte to take her away from a country where too much was required of an unhappy princess. The fairy refused at first, with a great show of firmness, but who could resist the tears and entreaties of anyone so pretty as Placida? It came to this in the end, that she transported the princess just as she was, cosily tucked up upon her favorite couch, to her own grotto, and this new disappearance left all the people in despair, and Gridolin went about looking more distracted than ever. But now let us return to Prince Vivian, and see what his restless spirit had brought him to. Though Placida's kingdom was a large one, his horse had carried him gallantly to the limit of it, but it could go no further, and the prince was obliged to dismount and continue his journey on foot, though this slow mode of progress tired his patience severely. After what seemed to him a very long time, he found himself all alone in a vast forest, so dark and gloomy that he secretly shuddered. However, he chose the most promising-looking path he could find, and marched along it courageously at his best speed, but in spite of all his efforts, night fell before he reached the edge of the wood. For some time he stumbled along, keeping to the path as well as he could in the darkness, and just as he was almost wearied out, he saw before him a gleam of light. This sight revived his drooping spirits, and he made sure that he was now close to the shelter and supper he needed so much. But the more he walked towards the light, the further away it seemed. Sometimes he even lost sight of it altogether, and you may imagine how provoked and impatient he was by the time he finally arrived at the miserable cottage from which the light proceeded. 
he gave a loud knock at the door, and an old woman's voice answered from within. But as she did not seem to be hurrying herself to open it, he redoubled his blows, and demanded to be let in imperiously, quite forgetting that he was no longer in his own kingdom. But all this had no effect upon the old woman, who only noticed all the uproar he was making by saying gently, You must have patience. He could hear that she really was coming to open the door to him, only she was so very long about it. First she chased away her cat, lest it should run away when the door was open. Then he heard her talking to herself, and made out that her lamp wanted trimming, and that she might see better who it was that knocked, and then that it lacked fresh oil, and she must refill it. So what with one thing and another, she was an immense time trotting to and fro, and all the while she now and again bade the prince have patience. When at last he stood within the little hut, he saw with despair that it was a picture of poverty, and that not a crumb of anything eatable was to be seen, and when he explained to the old woman that he was dying of hunger and fatigue, she only answered tranquilly that he must have patience. However, she presently showed him a bundle of straw on which he could sleep. "'But what can I have to eat?' cried Prince Vivian sharply. "'Wait a little, wait a little.' she replied. If you will only have patience, I am just going out into the garden to gather some peas. We will shell them at our leisure. Then I will light a fire and cook them, and when they are thoroughly done, we can enjoy them peaceably. There is no hurry. I shall have died of starvation by the time all that is done, said the prince ruefully. Patience. Patience, said the old woman, looking at him with her slow, gentle smile. I can't be hurried. All things come at last to him who waits. You must have heard that often. Prince Vivian was wild with aggravation, but there was nothing to be done. Come, then, said the old woman. You shall hold the lamp to light me while I pick the peas. The prince in his haste snatched it up so quickly that it went out, and it took him a long time to light it again with two little bits of glowing charcoal which he had to dig out from the pile of ashes upon the hearth. However, at last the peas were gathered and shelled, and the fire lighted, but then they had to be carefully counted, since the old woman declared that she would cook fifty-four, and no more. In vain did the prince represent to her that he was famished that fifty-four peas would go no way towards satisfying his hunger, that a few peas, more or less, surely could not matter. It was quite useless. In the end he had to count out the fifty-four, and worse than that, because he dropped one or two in his hurry, he had to begin again from the very first to be sure the number was complete. As soon as they were cooked, the old dom took a pair of scales and a morsel of bread from the cupboard, and was just about to divide it when Prince Vivian, who really could wait no longer, seized the whole piece and ate it up, saying in his turn, Patience! You mean that for a joke, said the old woman, as gently as ever. But that is really my name, and some day you will know more about me. Then they ate their twenty-seven peas, and the prince was surprised to find that he wanted nothing more and he slept as sweetly upon his bed of straw as he had ever done in his palace. 
In the morning the old woman gave him milk and bread for his breakfast, which he ate contentedly, rejoicing that there was nothing to be gathered or counted or cooked, and when he had finished he begged her to tell him who she was. That I will, with pleasure, she replied, but it will be a long story. Oh, if it's long I can't listen, cried the prince. But, said she, at your age you should attend to what old people say, and learn to have patience. But, but, said the prince, in his most impatient tone, old people should not be so long-winded. Tell me what country I have got into, and nothing else. With all my heart, said she, you are in the forest of the black bird. It is here that he utters his oracles. An oracle, cried the prince. Oh, I must go and consult him. Thereupon he drew a handful of gold from his pocket and offered it to the old woman, and when she would not take it, he threw it down upon the table and was off like a flash of lightning, without even staying to ask the way. He took the first path that presented itself and followed it at the top of his speed, often losing his way, or stumbling over some stone, or running up against a tree, and leaving behind him without regret the cottage, which had been as little to his taste as the character of its possessor. After some time he saw in the distance a huge black castle which commanded a view of the whole forest. The prince felt certain that this must be the abode of the oracle, and just as the sun was setting he reached its outermost gates. The whole castle was surrounded by a deep moat, and the drawbridge and the gates, and even the water in the moat, were all of the same somber hue as the walls and towers. Upon the gate hung a huge bell, upon which was written in red letters, Mortal, if thou art curious to know thy fate, strike this bell, and submit to what shall befall thee. The prince, without the smallest hesitation, snatched up a great stone and hammered vigorously upon the bell, which gave forth a deep and terrible sound. The gate flew open and closed again with a thundering clang the moment the prince had passed through it, while from every tower and battlement rose a wheeling, screaming crowd of bats, which darkened the whole sky with their multitudes. Anyone but Prince Vivian would have been terrified by such an uncanny sight, but he strode stoutly forward till he reached the second gate, which was opened to him by sixty black slaves covered from head to foot in long mantles. He wished to speak to them, but soon discovered that they spoke an utterly unknown language, and did not seem to understand a word he said. This was a great aggravation to the prince, who was not accustomed to keep his ideas to himself and he positively found himself wishing for his old friend Patience. However, he had to follow his guides in silence, and they led him into a magnificent hall. The floor was of ebony, the walls of jet, and all the hangings were of black velvet. But the prince looked round it in vain for something to eat, and then made signs that he was hungry. In the same manner he was respectfully given to understand that he must wait, and after several hours the sixty hooded and shrouded figures reappeared, and conducted him with great ceremony, and also very, very slowly, to a banqueting hall, where they all placed themselves at a long table. The dishes were arranged down the center of it, and with his usual impetuosity, 
The prince seized the one that stood in front of him to draw it nearer, but soon found that it was firmly fixed in its place. Then he looked at his solemn and lugubrious neighbors, and saw that each one was supplied with a long hollow reed through which he slowly sucked up his portion, and the prince was obliged to do the same, though he found it a frightfully tedious process. After supper they returned as they had come to the ebony room, where he was compelled to look on while his companions played interminable games of chess, and not until he was nearly dying of weariness did they, slowly and ceremoniously as before, conduct him to his sleeping apartment. The hope of consulting the oracle woke him very early the next morning, and his first demand was to be allowed to present himself before it, but, without replying, his attendants conducted him to a huge marble bath, very shallow at one end and quite deep at the other, and gave him to understand that he was to go into it. The prince, nothing loth, was for springing at once into deep water, but he was gently but forcibly held back and only allowed to stand where it was about an inch deep, and he was nearly wild with impatience when he found that this process was to be repeated every day in spite of all he could say or do, the water rising higher and higher by inches, so that for sixty days he had to live in perpetual silence, ceremoniously conducted to and fro, supping all his meals through the long reed, and looking on at innumerable games of chess, the game of all others which he detested most. But at last the water rose as high as his chin, and his bath was complete. And that day the slaves in their black robes, and each having a large bat perched upon his head, marched in slow procession with the prince in their midst, chanting a melancholy song, to the iron gate that led into a kind of temple. At the sound of their chanting, another band of slaves appeared, and took possession of the unhappy Vivian. They looked to him exactly like the ones he had left, except that they moved more slowly still, and each one held a raven upon his wrist, and their harsh croakings re-echoed through the dismal place. Holding the prince by the arms, not so much to do him honor as to restrain his impatience, they proceeded by slow degrees up the steps of the temple and when they at last reached the top, he thought his long waiting must be at an end. But on the contrary, after slowly enshrouding him in a long black robe like their own, they led him into the temple itself, where he was forced to witness numbers of lengthy rites and ceremonies. By this time Vivian's active impatience had subsided into passive weariness. His yawns were continual and scandalous, but nobody heeded him. He stared hopelessly at the thick black curtain which hung down straight in front of him, and could hardly believe his eyes when it presently began to slide back, and he saw before him the black bird. It was of enormous size, and was perched upon a thick bar of iron which ran across from one side of the temple to the other. At the sight of it all the slaves fell upon their knees and hid their faces, and when it had three times flapped its mighty wings, it uttered distinctly in Prince Vivian's own language the words, Prince, your only chance of happiness depends upon that which is most opposed to your own nature. Then the curtain fell before it once more, and the prince, after many ceremonies, was presented with a raven which perched upon his wrist, and was conducted slowly back to the iron gate. 
Here the raven left him, and he was handed over once more to the care of the first band of slaves, while a large bat flickered down and settled upon his head of its own accord. And so he was taken back to the marble bath, and he had to go through the whole process again, only this time he began in deep water which receded daily, inch by inch. When this was over, the slaves escorted him to the outer gate, and took leave of him with every mark of esteem and politeness, to which it is to be feared he responded but indifferently, since the gate was no sooner opened than he took to his heels and fled away with all his might, his one idea being to put as much space as possible between himself and the dreary place into which he had ventured so rashly, just to consult a tedious oracle who after all had told him nothing. He actually reflected for about five seconds on his folly, and came to the conclusion that it might sometimes be advisable to think before one acted. After wandering about for several days until he was weary and hungry, he at last succeeded in finding a way out of the forest, and soon came to a wide and rapid river, which he followed, hoping to find some means of crossing it. And it happened that as the sun rose the next morning, he saw something of a dazzling whiteness moored out in the middle of the stream. Upon looking more attentively at it, he found that it was one of the prettiest little ships he had ever seen, and the boat that belonged to it was made fast to the bank quite close to him. The prince was immediately seized with the most ardent desire to go on board the ship, and shouted loudly to attract the notice of her crew, but no one answered. So he sprang into the little boat and rowed away without finding it at all hard work, for the boat was made all of white paper, and was as light as a rose leaf. The ship was made of white paper too, as the prince presently discovered when he reached it. He found not a soul on board, but there was a very cosy little bed in the cabin, and an ample supply of all sorts of good things to eat and drink, which he made up his mind to enjoy until something new happened. Having been thoroughly well brought up at the court of King Gridolin, of course he understood the art of navigation, but when once he had started, the current carried the vessel down at such a pace that before he knew where he was, the prince found himself out at sea, and a wind springing up behind him just at this moment soon drove him out of sight of land. By this time he was somewhat alarmed, and did his best to put the ship about and get back to the river, but wind and tide were too strong for him and he began to think of the number of times, from his childhood up, that he had been warned not to meddle with water. But it was too late now to do anything but wish vainly that he had stayed on shore, and to grow heartily weary of the boat and the sea and everything connected with it. These two things, however, he did most thoroughly. To put the finishing touch to his misfortunes, he presently found himself becalmed in mid-ocean, a state of affairs which would be considered trying by the most patient of men, so you can imagine how it affected Prince Vivian. He even came to wishing himself back at the castle of the Blackbird, for there at least he saw some living beings, whereas on board the white paper ship he was absolutely alone, and could not imagine how he was ever to get away from his wearisome prison. However, after a very long time he did see land, and his impatience to be on shore was so great that he at once flung himself over the ship's side that he might reach it sooner by swimming. But this was quite useless, for spring as far as he might from the vessel, it was always under his feet again before he reached the water, 
and he had to resign himself to his fate and wait with what patience he could muster until the winds and waves carried the ship into a kind of natural harbor which ran far into the land. After his long imprisonment at sea, the prince was delighted with his sight of the great trees which grew down to the very edge of the water, and leaping lightly on shore he speedily lost himself in the thick forest. When he had wandered a long way, he stopped to rest beside a clear spring of water, but scarcely had he thrown himself down upon the mossy bank, when there was a great rustling in the bushes close by, and out sprang a pretty little gazelle, panting and exhausted, which fell at his feet, gasping out, Oh, Vivian, save me! The prince, in great astonishment, leapt to his feet, and had just time to draw his sword before he found himself face to face with a large green lion which had been hotly pursuing the poor little gazelle. Prince Vivian attacked it gallantly, and a fierce combat ensued, which, however, ended before long in the prince's dealing his adversary a terrific blow which felled him to the earth. As he fell, the lion whistled loudly three times with such force that the forest rang again, and the sound must have been heard for more than two leagues round, after which, having apparently nothing more to do in the world, he rolled over on his side and died. The prince, without paying any further heed to him or to his whistling, returned to the pretty gazelle, saying, Well, are you satisfied now? Since you can talk, pray tell me instantly what all this is about, and how you happen to know my name. Oh, I must rest for a long time before I can talk, she replied. And besides, I very much doubt if you will have leisure to listen, for the affair is by no means finished. In fact, she continued in the same languid tone, you had better look behind you now. The prince turned sharply round and to his horror saw a huge giant approaching with mighty strides, crying fiercely, Who has made my lion whistle, I should like to know? I have, replied the prince boldly but I can answer for it that he will not do it again. At these words the giant began to howl and lament, Alas, my poor Tiny, my sweet little pet, he cried, but at least I can avenge thy death. Thereupon he rushed at the prince, brandishing an immense serpent which was coiled about his wrist. Vivian, without losing his coolness, aimed a terrific blow at it with his sword, but no sooner had did he touch the snake, then it changed into a giant, and the giant into a snake, with such rapidity that the prince felt perfectly giddy, and this happened at least half a dozen times, until at last, with a fortunate stroke, he cut the serpent in halves, and picking up one morsel, flung it with all his force at the nose of the giant, who fell insensible on top of the lion, and in an instant a thick black cloud rolled up which hid them from view and when it cleared away, they had all disappeared. End of Prince Vivian and Princess Placida, Part 1